It's not easy to go on air and deliver the nightly news, especially when your country is struggling out from under the thumb of a ruthless, hardline Islamic theocracy run by the Taliban. But that's what Wafa did in Afghanistan in 2009. He ignored what the Taliban thought of his news coverage. Wafa cinched up his tie to his collar, slid into his jacket, and walked on set. He took a seat behind his desk in the television studio and arranged his script in two piles in front of him. This is Wafa. I'm only going to use his nickname. You'll understand why later. Wafa's serious without being stern. His dark hair parts just off the middle. The background is busy, a spinning graphic of a compass, and four screens that each show spinning blue cubes that stop and jigsaw together into a map of the earth. A pen rests in Wafa's right hand, casual. There's a silver wedding band on his left ring finger. At the time, he was a journalism student. Anchoring the local news was a side gig. But it wasn't exactly news. The stories were relatively accurate, the information was in the public interest, but really, this newscast was psychological warfare against the Taliban. Wafa's producers were unusual. They worked in the infamous CIA base, Camp Chapman. They were U.S. Special Forces Psychological Operations Officers. And this was propaganda. There's some slick transitions showing teaser clips for the news ahead. A civic meeting, someone planting a flower, men offloading sacks from a truck. The audio effects sound like punching noises from the arcade game, Street Fighter. When the show ends, Wafa signs off and sets his script aside like a pro. Behind the scenes, he wasn't so buttoned up. This is a cell phone video from around 2012 inside a U.S. outpost. It's Wafa and his Afghan comrades in the cafeteria, American troops all around them, eating. Wafa and his buddies are at a long table, sipping Cokes, talking about their phones. Wafa was happy when the United States came to Afghanistan. He was an educated journalist, and the U.S. needed his help. They piped him into psychological operations programs, and after a stint in TV news, he ended up at a U.S. combat outpost called Little Blue. It was out in a wide, dusty plain surrounded by gravelly hills and rock. Wafa pans the camera around the table. A lot of these Afghans were working for a psychological operation the U.S. had just rolled out called Radio in a Box. Up until this point, the U.S. tried to persuade Afghans to turn against the Taliban by dropping leaflets from planes. But literacy rates in Afghanistan are really low. As it turns out, most Afghans get their information from the radio. So the U.S. hired guys like Wafa to run radio shows for the Afghan people. They didn't have amazing English, but that wasn't the point. It was radio for the Afghan people by the Afghan people. Wafa turns the cell phone video on himself. How are you? How are you? How are you? Yeah, I had just uh, learned this one 
stress and I would use to say, how are you, how are you, how are you? He learned the basics. The guy talking in English is my translator, Fazel. You can hear him furiously typing translation notes in the background. I couldn't meet Wafa in person. I talked to him via WhatsApp. I won't tell you where he is now. You'll find that out too. Wafa speaks Pashto. Most Pashtuns in Afghanistan speak it, somewhere around 40% of the country. Pashtuns are the main ethnic group the Taliban targets for recruitment. It was no accident U.S. psychological operations targeted them with the radio in a box program. And it was like Wafa had been training for this since he was a kid. Uh, well, I used to listen to BBC News. Then when I was go somewhere and wander around, I would say news. Wafa means he'd walk around alone and make believe he was a radio reporter. Or he'd recite the day's headlines and stories. Every time, every time, listen to radio, you didn't talk, every day. <laughs> My favorite job. Who is your favorite reporter for BBC? BBC ke the Gauhar Rahman, Gauhar Panumchus. Gauhar Rahman Gauhar, famous guy. He used to say everything very loud and clear, and that's why I like him. People in Afghanistan used to send letters to the BBC, hoping they might get read over the radio. Wafa's friend postmarked his letters to London Forum. Did they ever read your letters on the air? Yes, uh, I heard three or four of my letters. I was so excited, and I, I would tell my whole family, just listen to my letter, and I like everything about radio. I just wanted my voice to be heard on radio. And in 2012, it was. Imagine if you combined the BBC with college radio. Wafa's radio-in-a-box station looked more like a wooden shed than a plush NPR studio. In this cell phone video of Wafa, he's at a table that was usually draped with an American flag tablecloth. He's got his computer out, he's playing Pashto pop music, swaying his head, twirling his finger. Beside him is the radio in a box. It's literally a box. It's the size of a guitar amp. On the front panel, there's a DJ mixer. Then below, there's a radio transmitter. This technology is commercially available, by the way. You plug it in and turn up the watts, and it can broadcast a radio signal about 15 miles. The US tossed them across southern and eastern Afghanistan like seeds, and then the Afghan radio DJs came along and nurtured them into popular radio stations, at least a hundred of them. Wafa played anthems for the Afghan national forces and a steady rotation of pop music. And what did the Taliban think? Uh, definitely Taliban wouldn't like them at all. This is an understatement. Playing pop music was like waving a middle finger in the Taliban's face. I remember one of the driver who was a taxi driver. That guy was uh, coming to our village every day. But one day, um, the Taliban got um, music in his car. This is John. That's J-A-N. He's Wafa's friend. He says someday, if he gets American citizenship, he'll change his name to John, J-O-H-N. He managed several radio-in-a-box stations. I talked to him on WhatsApp, too. In the story he was telling, he says that when the Taliban caught the taxi driver playing music, a Talib got him out of the car. The, one of the Talib, he uh, beated him with a cable. I, uh, I think it was a chain cable. He beated him with the uh, with the chain uh, into his head, and the and the driver died in the spot. 
Jesus. The Taliban like to invoke a saying from the Prophet Muhammad, which I should add, the specific quote is highly discredited, possibly not even real, but the Taliban go with it anyway. It goes, those who listen to music and songs in this world, on the day of judgment, molten lead will be poured into their ears. While it might have looked like Wafa sat a safe distance from the war in Afghanistan, in his plywood studio on an American base, shuffling through CDs, recording call-in shows from listeners, he knew the Taliban could still reach him. Before I started working in Kandahar, they killed already two, two persons there. What, wait, what? They killed two DJs? Yes. <sighs> DJs were on the target list. The DJs weren't targeted just because of pop music. The Radio in a Box program banked on another credible idea, freedom of information and journalism. It wasn't journalism per se, but it borrowed from it. To get information, to interview people, DJs have to leave the studio, leave the base, go outside the wire, as they say. One day, Wafa got a call at the station. It was the Afghan National Police. They had a Taliban down at the police station. Come interview him, they said. When Wafa got there, he found the Talib in a cell and turned on the recorder. The Taliban's voice sounds weak because he was shot before he was captured. Wafa starts pulling the story out of him. According to the Talib, he was working lookout for another Taliban who was placing improvised explosive devices on the road. He says the Talib with the IED asked him to take over. As the Talib describes it, it was the equivalent of, hey, can you hold this bomb real quick? They were spotted by coalition forces, and he was shot. How long have you been a militant? Wafa asks. The Talib says he used to be a policeman. What turned you from a policeman to a Taliban? Wafa asks. He says he was attacked by the Taliban one day, captured, and they stole his money. So he hatched a plan to exact revenge from the inside by joining the Taliban. He says he planned to hand over inside information to the government. He was lying to me, and this was not a true story. So what did you do when you knew he was lying to you? We published it three, four times on radio. The broadcast of the interview with the lying Talib was one of many successful broadcasts that undermined the Taliban's reputation. Wafa's U.S. military supervisor, Air Force Major Paul Weaver, wrote a glowing letter of recommendation for Wafa, which I have a copy of right here. Major Weaver writes, When Wafa first arrived, the radio was non-operational and no program was in place. He goes on to write, Wafa was poised to take the district by storm and quickly established a strong following with a 14-hour-per-day schedule. Wafa didn't know how hard it would be to live with his success. I got a lot of phone calls. That's John again, Wafa's friend. I was buying something, and someone called me, and he told me that, hey, uh, we can kill you. I said, how? He said, uh, they got my information and everything. And I was kind of shocked. And I shared those information with the security forces. But uh, security forces couldn't do anything. I was, uh, I was a DJ. And I was very famous. 
I interviewed more than 20 Afghan radio DJs who shared all their documents with me. All of them had received death threats for their work for the Americans. At work, at home, one DJ's brother drove through his family's main gate and was blown up by an IED. He was treated at a U.S. base and survived. That same DJ's other brother was kidnapped by the Taliban. One DJ manager woke up in the middle of the night to an attack. Rockets and hand grenades. His family packed into a sort of bunker they had built in the house. He says he answered with his own gun. He survived the short firefight. The next day, he left the countryside for Kabul. Lots of DJs have left their homes to live in the cities where the security is a little better. One DJ even talks with a fake accent so no one can recognize his radio voice. At the beginning of 2015, I, I got some calls. Uh, these calls were from the, the Taliban and they told me that you must present to the, to the court at any cost. The Taliban or a Taliban-affiliated militant called Wafa. They were going to charge you with a crime. Yeah, it was like a trial, yeah. But run by the Taliban. Yeah, definitely. They had their own courts there. And what was the court? But it was just like a killing. You would go there, they, they would kill you. And this is their kind of court, so-called court. It dawned on Wafa. He couldn't live the rest of his life like this. It was 2014, and the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan. The Taliban would never forget that he worked for the U.S., he was tarred as a collaborator forever. I was really scared. And even I couldn't tell this news to my family because uh, I, I thought they would really get worried about me. He kept the death threat secret, thinking he might be able to save himself and his family with a special immigrant visa to the United States. The special immigrant visa, SIV for short, is a visa program for special cases involving Iraqi and Afghan partners who worked for the United States during the wars in the Middle East. An Afghan who worked for one year for the U.S. military, had proof of employment, and a letter of recommendation from their superior could get a visa to live in the United States. Wafa had 10 months of employment at combat outpost Little Blue, about three months working as a newscaster for the special forces, and this strong recommendation letter from his Air Force major. So I had heard that there are this process of uh, SIV visa. That visa be a rejection. My visa was denied. A lawyer from the International Refugee Assistance Project, an NGO, reviewed some of Wafa's documents. He needs employment verification for a few months of work he did for PSYOPs for the U.S. Special Forces. Video evidence of his newscasts don't count. But more importantly, Major Weaver's letter didn't cut it. It doesn't tick some of the SIV requirements. He didn't leave his contact info. He needed to write the dates of Wafa's service period, Wafa's date of birth, a statement of the threats made against Wafa, and an explicit assurance Wafa is not a national security threat. Wafa tried to find Major Weaver so he could revise his letter, but he couldn't get a working email for him and no one knew how to find him several years after the fact. The Department of Defense has a supervisor locator tool. It's supposed to find Afghans' military supervisors for them, but a director from the International Refugee Assistance Project, the NGO, 
told me they hadn't seen the supervisor tool work for years. She said it worked once. Wafa considered appealing the decision on his SIV visa, but he knew the wait time might be too long. He told his father about the death threats. He felt like he didn't have any options. The smuggler, you need to meet him and he will take us from Kabul. They would usually hide their identity. I had to give him $5,000. Wow. How did you come up with that money? Actually, the problem was not about money because I have money. I had money and my family had money. The problem was no one supported Wafa's decision to smuggle himself to Germany. Wafa's friend, John, found out about his plan and called him urgently. When Wafa told you that he was going to walk to Germany, what did you think? I technically uh, denied him. Yeah, I even fight with him. There are security forces in every country. They can, they can shoot you. No one wants illegal immigrants. I said, no, Wafa John, you should not do this because you can die. Why you choose this way? Wafa's perspective was there wasn't any other way. The death threats escalated. He was convinced that even if he stayed in hiding, he put his family in jeopardy. He has a wife, two daughters, and a son. If the Taliban found him, they might kill them too. Wafa felt the only way to keep them safe was to leave them behind. And after a while, his family agreed with him. He found two friends who wanted to leave Afghanistan. The three of them went to a bus station with Wafa's dad. And at 2 a.m., they prepared to board. I told him, look, Dad, I have no other way out, and I have to go. It was like a moment of separation from a child to his father, and I hugged him, and I consoled him. When I was just leaving at that time, he had tears in his eyes, and this moment, it is still in the back of my mind. This memory still sits in the back of Wafa's mind because it was the last time he saw his father face to face. And as Wafa took his first steps towards Germany, up the stairs onto the large passenger bus, there was no way for him to know what lay ahead. Wafa and his two travel friends pulled away from the bus stop and drove towards the border with Pakistan. They transferred to pickup trucks and took off across the desert. Exhaust and silt covered their faces. Then the pickup slowed to a stop. It was a Taliban checkpoint. They didn't ask any person, what are you and what were you doing? And they were only gave a short speech, what to do, what not to do, how is Taliban, how is not Taliban, who is bad people. This is Wafa's friend. I'll call him Ahmed. The Taliban had no idea that Wafa, Ahmed, and their other friend were Taliban assassination targets. The Taliban were just trying to spread a simple message. To persuade people that we are the best Wafu was not impressed with the roadside sermon. Weak psychological warfare. And luckily, the Taliban didn't ask questions. Wafa and his travel party, which grew to about 25 Afghans, including a family with a child, got off the bus in Pakistan and walked through shale hills towards the Iranian border. They were short on water. They didn't see a stream or well for hours. They walked past shallow graves of migrants 
who didn't make it. Uh, they, they were not to be seen, but it not so deep. So. The wind and weather had exhumed some of the bodies. When they found their smugglers, they were pushed into cars. One person in front seat, three person at the back seat, and two person under the foot area, and two people are the what? Uh, what um, in the trunk? In the trunk, yeah, really. This is how things went. They were stuffed in cars. The smugglers drove pedal to the metal to the next smuggler and handed them off. They slept in a barn once, empty rooms, no showers. Just like animals, you know? They reached the border between Iran and Turkey where a wall of mountains stood in their way. They started scaling ravines and climbing over rocks. It was really scary moments for us. It was snowing, yeah. They helped carry baggage for the family, crested the top about nine hours later, and they met the smugglers at the base of the mountains in Turkey. Smuggling work in Turkey was more straightforward. They put the travel party on a bus that took them all the way to Istanbul. The last and biggest obstacle in their way was Bulgaria. The security forces had shot and killed an Afghan on the border recently. There was a terrifying mixture of true and false stories about the forests of Bulgaria. Wafa's smugglers suggested they stock up to prepare. One recommendation, energy drinks. Coconuts, cookies, some things like that. Enough calories to cross the forest on the border between Turkey and Bulgaria. Nothing about it was easy. You spent your night in, in the forest? In the forest, yeah. They huddled together in the dark and rested. Before dawn, they walked out of the woods, hungry. Two cars waited in a clearing. The smugglers packed Wafa and the Afghans in and drove to the capital of Bulgaria, Sofia. They arrived at night and filed into a dirty three-room house. Everything was in their control. Uh, if we needed something like shower or other stuff, we would give them money and they would buy it for, for us. And they would even charge double money for us. After about five nights getting price gouged for groceries, the smugglers took them towards the border with Serbia. This border was seen as the last hurdle. From Serbia onwards, simple train rides and buses worked. No more hiding. But first, the woods again. The smugglers took them to the edge of a massive forest. Wafa and the Afghans followed them inside. It was midnight. We were really scared, not only from the police just to get arrested, but also from the animals. They heard movement in the brush. The Afghans stopped. They stood quietly. They had no way to defend themselves. Then they saw what could have been two large boars, but no one was sure what they really were. It was hard to make them out in the dark. When they saw Wafa and the Afghans, they split. When the sun rose, the forest opened up into a field. The smugglers stopped and turned to the travel party. They explained that there could be some police nearby. They needed to go have a look. They told us, just stay here and keep calm. We are coming back. We were waiting for two, three, four hours. These smugglers, they, they said they were coming, and but they didn't come. And then it was nighttime, and we didn't have their address. We didn't have their contact. So we were, we were just left there. That's what the smugglers do to you. The group started to panic. Everyone had a different idea for what to do. Waf and his friends decided to try and keep going to Serbia and left. We had no idea which direction we are going or, and where we are going, but we were just going. 
Since they first stepped into the forest with the smugglers, they'd been walking for about two days and two nights without food. And that's when they crossed paths with two old Bulgarian women. They were shepherds, tending their flock of sheep. Wafa and his friends asked if there was food nearby. She told uh, us that, yeah, there's uh, this village uh, shops and one small restaurant you can buy. We also asked them that, is there any threats of police to catch us or something? No, there's no police there. Wafa and his friends set off for the village, giddy. This village is our village. We were talking like this because we didn't have any threat anymore. No fear. No fear because of our hunger. <laughs> we, we didn't fear from police, from anything, and we just want to eat something. <laughs> but their optimism suddenly disappeared. So we were walking down and then the and two person, one woman and one man was uh, driving behind us. And it was not so fast and not so slower. The car drove ahead, stopped, waited for Wafa and his friends to pass beside them, and drove ahead again, leapfrogging them. Wafa's friend turned to the group. And for the second time, when they come again behind us, and uh, I told them that this car is suspicious, we should ask them uh, what they want from us. They thought maybe they wanted to rob them. So they stopped and asked the driver what was going on. They asked if there was food ahead. And they told us that, uh, yes, come and follow us. And in the way that they were speaking, we understood that they are not going to help us and they have some plan. The car would leapfrog them, then break and wait. Finally, the driver stopped, got out, and yelled to the group. And told us in Bulgarian language, not to run, please stop and stay here, police is coming. So, oh, then we were, looked to each other, oh, that was the problem, yeah. Wafa and the group headed directly for the woods and climbed down into a ravine. They waited. A member of the group volunteered to go and see what was happening. They climbed out of the ravine and out into the open. They were surrounded by police. When they saw Wafa and his friends, they fired warning shots into the air. One friend tried to talk to the cops. And also beat one of our friends. He doesn't, he didn't know the, their language. And they just, they just punched him twice. Where did they punch him? A head and neck area and told him to sit down. They were arrested and taken to a detention center full of migrants called Busmansi. It's on the outskirts of the Bulgarian capital. Tall stucco walls, razor wire, one of those giant metal gates for cars that has a little door for people built into the lower corner. Inside, it was filthy, overcrowded, two small meals a day, no bathroom after 10 at night. People peed in their cells. Wafa and the Afghans talked about deporting themselves back to Afghanistan. But after 24 days, they were released. Before they left, the Bulgarian authorities took their fingerprints. This is what they do in Bulgaria. When they take your fingerprints, uh, then they think that even if you go to some other European countries, you will be sent back to Bulgaria. Bulgaria's policy was suspect. EU asylum law doesn't prohibit refugees from applying for asylum in the country they arrive at. Either way, Wafa managed to make contact with their smugglers again, which led to a confrontation. 
And I told them that uh, you should have taken us uh, to Serbia directly. Uh, we were present here and they took our fingerprints here and uh, then now you are going to take us. And then I told them that actually you have to take us to our destination. And they did. They took Wafa and his friends in cars to the Serbian border where they arranged for taxis to wait for them. From there on, freedom of movement was almost unrestricted. Wafa took a series of buses and trains, one after the other. Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, and finally, Cologne, Germany. There was a woman who was a, like a, a worker there. She was giving fruits and foods to, to all the refugees. It was a really happy moment for me, and eventually I called my family, and I informed them that I reached them. More than a month had passed since Wafa's family last heard from him. He applied for asylum, went to an interview, and settled in a government-issue apartment in a small town called Elsdorf. Eventually, he heard back from the German authorities. His asylum request was denied. They sent me a letter and they told me that they were not going to trust my story, my virginal story. Did they, get to, did they see your documents? Well, uh, I gave everything to them. Uh, I gave some information and flash drive. I provided them with pictures. I gave them copies of all the papers I had. But I still, I still wonder why they denied my application. I have no idea. Wafa went to see a lawyer with a mop of gray hair named Frank Schoenbeck. He charged 900 euros to review his case and litigate an appeal. They met, sat down together, and Schoenbeck looked at Wafa's documents. He couldn't believe it. He said that it is insane that why, why they denied your application. And even he, he told me that you don't have to pay these 900 euros. Still, Wafa's in limbo. He's still waiting for his court date for his asylum appeal. Until very recently, he didn't have papers to work in Germany while his case was processed. His family back in Afghanistan slipped into poverty. He hasn't seen them in four years. I just want to go to the court and defend myself and tell them that what was going on. And I need to ask them that my family is away for almost four years from me now. So what's my crime? What I did wrong? What was Wafa's crime? It seemed to me that every crack in the bureaucratic process, every crack in the SIV system, grew into a chasm that swallowed him up. After everything Wafa went through, I wanted to know how American troops who worked with Wafa felt about his fate. Remember Wafa's supervisor, Major Weaver? The one he couldn't find to revise his crucial letter of recommendation? Shortly before the 4th of July, I found him. We exchanged text messages. Hi, I'm Chris Harlan Dunaway. I'm a journalist. I'm reporting a story about Afghan radio DJs for The Verge. I'm looking for Air Force Major Paul Weaver to learn more about the program at Combat Outpost Little Blue. Do I have the right number? The next day. Hi, checking in again in case this is the right number for Paul Weaver. We can talk off the record first if you prefer. Uh, happy to answer your questions. Then, five days later. Hi, Mr. Harlan Dunaway. This is Major Paul Weaver. Sorry for the delay. 
I've reached out to Central Command Public Affairs to assist in the matter and per their recommendation, it would be useful to provide all your questions in writing prior to any interview. I can then have Central Command Public Affairs review the questions with me and provide any recommendations. I'll also need to know what your overall article is about and what role my answers will have in the story. I explained what the story was about, the plight of the DJs, how he wrote a letter of recommendation for a DJ I was talking to. Wafa, of course. I couldn't give him questions ahead of time. I called Central Command Public Affairs and told them about the story, and told them I wanted to interview Major Weaver. They had no objection. I told Major Weaver that the DJ whose story I wanted to tell him was Wafa's, and sent photos of Wafa, one of him receiving a certificate of appreciation from an army officer, one of him posing in front of a cream-colored military vehicle, another of Wafa out in a valley, standing next to a U.S. soldier, a rifle in the soldier's hand, a microphone in Wafa's. Major Weaver went silent. It's impossible to know why. My guess is he probably doesn't feel like talking to a reporter about the legal tripwires that torpedoed his letter for Wafa or the process of bureaucratic box ticking. I often think about the SIV requirement where DJ's military supervisor has to explicitly vouch that the Afghan isn't a national security threat. How many U.S. military officers would knowingly write a letter of recommendation for someone who they thought was a national security threat? And if an Afghan DJ appeals an SIV decision, they can die waiting. A recent lawsuit against Secretary of State Mike Pompeo revealed the State Department systematically undercounts wait times for appeals. The State Department says it takes nine months, maximum, end to end. Discovery documents from the lawsuit show the average is more like three years. Wafa slipped into despair. Until he was given a work permit, he spent most of his time in his apartment in Ellsdorf, isolated, wishing he could see his family, rehashing old memories working the radio station against the Taliban, trying to remember old soldiers' names he could try to contact. What's your opinion of what the United States has done in your case? Do you feel like they didn't help you even though you helped them? Well, I dedicated myself to them and honestly, I was working for them with my heart. But Wafa's dedication isn't enough. In 2015, the rules for the Afghan SIV program were revised. The work requirement for the U.S. military is two years now, not one year. Wafa falls short on this requirement. If the United States goes someday in the future and fights a war somewhere else, and people in the country where they're fighting volunteer to help the United States, would he tell them that even if you help the United States, they might not help you later? He said no. He points out that despite all its faults, the SIV visa system has managed to save thousands of Afghans who worked for the United States. Still, Wafa has found someone to blame. I think it was my own problem. Maybe as my English, which is not, I'm not very good at English and not fluent, or maybe I had no recommendation letter, and it might be my problem, not of the United States. If Wafa's bid for asylum in Germany does fail, he says he'll go straight to the U.S. Embassy in Hamburg and lay out all his documentation one more time. I was the one who was working with them from the bottom of my heart. I was loyal to them. 
The war in Afghanistan is the longest war in America's history. In the long run, experts think the U.S.'s broader psychological war was lost. And because of that, it's harder to see smaller victories like radio in a box, a victory even harder to see when the DJs are left behind. But despite all the hearts and minds lost in Afghanistan, the United States still has Wafas. This special episode of Pirate Radio Vergecast was made by Chris Harlan Dunaway, Andrew Marino, and Kevin Nguyen. Fact check done by Maya Hibbett. Special thanks to Studio City Sound in Los Angeles. And special thanks to Nilay Patel, who in the spirit of Pirate Radio allowed us to hijack the Vergecast for a few episodes. <laughs>